shared and uh, in a individualistic world in which we live in to be reminded that we all stand on the shoulders or work behind people who have gone before us and what a joy it is and blessing it is to have so many beautiful witnesses to the gospel who have uh, worked in this place and very grateful for that heritage this uh, this morning I wanted to um, I wanted to kind of just take a take a pause, and uh, I'm going to do two kind of ad hoc concerns, and that I was reminded one of these I was reminded again this this past week of how important it is for us to think about, and a second one that's, that's been talked about a great deal with regard not only to race but with regard to lots of issues of division between groupings of people. Um, so the first one I want to talk about this seems to something, doesn't it? <laughs> that better maybe a little better um, the, the first thing I want to talk about is I was reminded this week um, I was in uh, Trader Joe's and one of my um, former students uh, who I saw somewhere this morning I don't know if he's in here right now or not um, I saw him in the uh, almond butter aisle whatever aisle that is in Trader <laughs> Joe's and, uh, and he said um, I saw you on the news last night and I said I said, what? I said, no, that wasn't me. And he said, no, it was you. I saw you in the news. And I said, what did you see me in the news? And he said, it was a video clip of you in chapel. And I said, oh. Well, um, a week and a half ago, we had on campus a, uh, a young woman that's uh, a lovely woman uh, named Michelle Higgins. And she is, uh, she's a pastor. She's an activist. And she has been um, allied in her town with the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, so we had had her on campus, and I, and I was invited by the Campus Life folks to, to be the person who would kind of interview her and have a conversation with her. And so we had a conversation with her on campus. Um, went went uh, reasonably well for whatever you can do in front of 2,000 somewhat restless college students who are required to be there. And. Um, <laughs> And so it was an interesting conversation, and um, but it it showed that uh, there's a lot of um, work still to be done, and it showed that there was a lot of um, anger among some students, and a lot of I think misunderstanding among some students. And um, finally, we had a story on Fox News that night where where the student was referring to 
that was uh, that came out of one student who was so frustrated and one of his points was to make a sharp distinction between the spiritual and the political and he said we don't have any business shoving a political agenda down people's throats in chapel that's about spiritual things so here's the first thing I want to note to you I want to suggest to you that you that we all should once and forever abolish the language of spiritual not political it is completely unhelpful and false now let me let me uh, let me introduce it with this with a quote here first some of you have probably heard me use this quote before I find it a shocking quote it's taken from a second century martyr of the church Justin Martyr um, anybody who's going to be martyred for the church is pretty serious about their faith especially when they're given opportunities to recant and they stick with it and end up martyred. Uh, Justin Martyr was one of the great leaders, thought leaders for the early church, and this quote comes from the second century. He says this, There are some who are called Christians who say that their souls when they die are taken to heaven. They are godless and pious heretics. Now I would like for you to consider that this is the language that we often hear at most Christian funerals. That Justin Martyr would consider godless and heretical. Now, I'll note just on an academic point that you should always be suspicious of people when they use lots of ellipses, as is done in this quote. <laughs> so let me fill it out just a little bit. He said, there are some who are called Christians who say that there is no resurrection of the dead, and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven. They're godless and pious heretics. I and others who are right-minded Christians on all these points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Um, the context of Justin Martyr's comment was the influx of what we call Neoplatonism into early Christianity. And Neoplatonism was a, a form of Greek philosophy that set up a sharp distinction between the bodily and the spiritual. And so it had this notion that the, the real important stuff is the spiritual stuff, the spirit, and the either indifferent or dangerous stuff was bodily. So for example, one, one thinker once said, when talk, uh, and the Gnosticism is one of the forms of those who picked up this sort of thinking that Justin Mars is reacting against. As one Gnostic thinker put it, one Christian Gnostic put it, that he says, death kindly frees the soul from the prison house of the body. You hear that language? So the early church looked at that language and they said, this is heretical. And one of the reasons that they saw it heretical was, first of all, as, as this quote shows, because of the notion of the resurrection of the body. That is, the gospel is not about souls floating off to heaven. The gospel is about all things being set to rights, or it's the language of Isaiah 65, the new heavens and the new earth, which is repeated in 2 Peter, which is repeated in Revelation 21 and 22. It's the language of the kingdom of God. Kingdom is an obviously political construct, right? And when Jesus comes upon the scene, Jesus doesn't say, if you believe in me, when you can die, you can go to heaven. He doesn't say, if you have a personal relationship with me, that when you die, your soul can go to heaven. What he proclaims is the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, depending on which gospel that you're reading. And the kingdom of God, as all the prophets knew, and all the prophets proclaimed, and all the prophets foresaw, was a 
from first to last, a spiritual, social, bodily, political, social construct. For Jews and early Christians, you cannot separate those categories. A truly, a true spirituality carries with it an inescapable politic. So, what I want to suggest is that when we talk about the separation of spirituality and politics, if we think that those things are easy to disentangle, I suggest to you that we've not understood Christian spirituality. Now, that being said, I think we have to be very careful to make the next step. Because let's back up just a second. Given the history of Christianity and the fact that we did increasingly separate spiritual from political. So think about it this way. And I'm doing this thought experiment as we go, so we'll see how this works. Uh, the early, early church saw, Christianity, saw, saw, saw spirituality and politics as inseparable. And it was a spirituality and a politics that was different than the Roman Empire. So Jesus is king of kings versus Caesar is king of kings. Jesus is Lord versus Caesar is Lord. Jesus is son of God versus Caesar is son of God. Jesus brings the peace of Christ, whereas Rome brings the Pax Romana. Okay, so they were, they was inescapable political and spiritual, but it was very clearly seen as contradistinctive to the politics of the Roman Empire. But increasingly what happened with the influence of Neoplatonism and other kind of influences, especially with the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, they very much privatized and spiritualized Christianity. These things were separated. The notion of the spiritual and the notion of the political. So they're separated. But anybody who's in a body and anybody who pays attention to anything that's going on in the world knows that politics matters a heck of a lot. Right? We know politics matters. We can act like it doesn't matter. We can be kind of super pious and super spiritual and act as if it doesn't matter. And I would suggest that those people are just as dangerous as the people who are kind of dominionist types. You know, those, those who act as if, well, it doesn't really matter what goes on the political realm because when we die, we're going to go to heaven. No, that's dangerous thinking too. But so we know, most of us know, politics still matters, but they've been separated. So then what do we do? Well, we got to figure out which party over here in this political, so-called political realm whose bandwagon we're going to jump on. And then we start fighting over here about which bandwagon we're going to jump on in this political realm, having thought we can separate it from Christianity in the first place. And then what we do is we rip the church apart, arguing the way we do. So what I want to suggest then is that while we must banish the language of the separation of religion and politics, or spirituality and politics. That does not mean that we then jump into, in the same way, partisan U.S. politics the way everybody else does. So in other words, we've got to make a distinction between the politics of the kingdom of God and U.S. partisan politics. That doesn't mean we don't have things to say to the U.S. partisan political world. But I think that if all we can ever do is gripe about one and celebrate the other, we're probably not doing a very good job as Christians. That's right. Because there's really beautiful things about, about political liberalism. Mm -hmm. And there's some really beautiful things about U.S. political conservatism. Mm -hmm. 
And if we can't see what's beautiful about both of them, and if we can't see what's terribly problematic about both of them, then I'm afraid we're in really dangerous waters. And if we bring these things together, if we bring spirituality and politics back together, then we can actually contribute something of worth to the world. By being Christian in the political world, if we really find a way to be specifically Christian, we can add some fascinating, fascinating things to the political landscape in our country that's not there right now. So I think that we have to figure out how to, hold, how to know when people say, we've got we to focus on the spiritual, not the political. We've got to find our own language to say, no, that is wrong. Because... And then we also have to be able to say, in response to so-called U.S. partisan politics, how to say, that's not the solution either. That's not the solution either. So let's do a quick think-pair-share. Find uh, somebody who's not your spouse to talk to, or identify who it's going to be real quick. <laughs> All right, come back to me real quick. Here's, here's your 60-second uh, question. For the next, um, next 60 seconds, what I'd like for you to do is, is to tell your person you're partnered with, uh, what do you find helpful? Either choose one or the other. What do you find helpful about what we've just said, or what do you find uh, bothersome to you about what I just said? What's helpful, or what's bothersome to you about what we just said? Okay, go. Give each person time to talk.
that religious freedom continues to exist. At the same time, as you are saying, there are values implicit in Christianity that have a place in the public welfare that we should go and do. I'm going to add 20 seconds to this. I'm running over. <laughs> this past week on the MTSU campus, we had the hate preachers there with their megaphones, calling all our girls whores, mm. declaring that we were all adulterers. Mm. There were 20 or 30 students maneuvering through the crowd telling the other students, this is not right. This is not Christ what Christianity is about. This, this is very wrong, and we don't believe all that stuff. Uh, so you have young people who are out there who are solid in the faith and who are working in a political way to try to overcome some things that are, I think, very wrong. Thank you. Thank you. John, last comment on this this we'll move point two. Um, I remember taking political science class from uh, Craig Bledsoe back in the day when you and I were young enough to be in college. And the definition of politics that he suggested at the time, which I still remember, is politics is who gets what, when, and how. If you think about that, that's what the church is all about, isn't it? Yeah. In terms of compassion and justice. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, obviously, um, tons to be said about this. Um, and it still leaves, even within the community, obviously, strong sense of disagreement with each other, right? Um, but I think that if we'll, if we'll try to to require ourselves to think in terms of these categories. It can still raise up possibilities for engagement and possibilities for dialogue and possibilities to add things to the public square that we couldn't otherwise. Second thing I want to point to is um, the, the conversation about uh, implicit bias. I don't know how many of you, how many of you are familiar with the term implicit bias? About half or 40% or so. Let me give you one definition uh, from some people at Rutgers of implicit bias. <clears throat> implicit bias is a subtle and pervasive form of bias against members of a group merely in virtue of their membership in that group, as opposed to explicit bias, which can consist in overtly discriminatory beliefs, actions, or institutional policies. Implicit bias often consists of unconscious, tacit attitudes and unintentional actions towards a group which may be in direct conflict with a person's explicit beliefs and values. Most implicitly biased actions are performed by people who are not even aware that their actions are biased. Even the most well-meaning and conscientious people have implicit biases. Let me see if I can put that in my own words. So, so explicit bias is I have, say, um, hateful attitudes towards women and I'm aware of it, and I'm proud of it, and I'll talk about it publicly and openly, and I'll demean women, and of course I'm going to interpret my experience with women through that presupposed lens, because those are my explicit assumptions about that group. So that's what we mean by explicit bias. Implicit bias is the manner in which I may say, and really believe, and try to work at having no bias towards women, but because of the context in which I find myself, because of factors of which I'm not even aware, I nonetheless may still act in such a way with a bias towards women. 
Okay. Let me give you a couple of recent examples of this. Um, there's, and there's lots of studies about this stuff that you, if, you're, if you're interested in, you dig up tons of them. I'm just giving you a couple of examples. Uh, one journal, Behavioral Ecology, um, recently started to have all articles reviewed anonymously. If you don't know how a referee journal works, somebody writes an article, they send it into the editor or the acquisitions editor of a journal, then they will send that out to a panel of experts in that particular area, and they'll send it out and they'll say, what do you think about this is worthy to be published or not? And then they will write back to the editor and they'll give it a score and they'll say, yes, it's good, no, it's not, and then they'll decide whether or not to publish it or not. So that's what we mean by a referee journal. So this was a refereed journal, and what they decided to do was simply change one policy. And the policy was that they would no longer attach the name of the authors to the articles that they're sending out to their referees. Uh, now, behavioral ecology, uh, these would be people, people, these referees are going to be highly educated. Most of them are going to be kind of on the, on the more social, political, liberal ends of things because of the kind of stuff that they're talking about. Uh, but they changed that one policy, so they no longer know if it's a man or a woman writing the articles. Uh, all of a sudden, 33% more submissions by women began to be published. Um, here's another fascinating one. Uh, recent studies. Uh, doctors misdiagnosed female cardiac patients, but not male patients, when one of the symptoms listed was stress. When stress was removed as a symptom, leaving only purely physical symptoms, there was no gender difference in diagnosis. The interpretation of this was this. You know, it can be disputed, but this is what the people doing the study said. The presence of stress, the researchers explained, sparked a meaning shift in which women's physical symptoms were reinterpreted as psychological while men's symptoms were perceived as organic, whether or not stressors were present, end quote. Do you see what we mean by implicit bias? Yes, so because you're a member of that group, we have, even though we're scientists, even though we're highly literate, highly educated, whatever the case may be, um, we have these sorts of things going on of which we're not aware that shape the way we relate to one another. Now, there's been a huge discussion about this recently with implicit bias with regard to race. Um, one of the most, uh, a widely reported study that's been talked a lot about in the last couple of years is the so-called online implicit association test. And, and as I understand this, um, again, I'm not an expert in this, I'm just reporting on the way I understand the stuff that's going on to help us understand kind of some of the conversation that's happening in our culture. Um, as I understand the way this thing works, is that it measures millisecond responses. So as, as one interpreter I heard explain this, is that, um, of course, our, our brains have at least three major systems, right? We've got the kind of prefrontal cortex rational part, we've got the limbic system, which is the emotional stuff, we've got the brain stem, which is very much fear-based. And, and we don't have much control over the fear-based stuff and not, as much, not <coughs> much control over the limbic stuff. What we can really work on is the thinking part. And that other stuff can start working in such a way so that what we're saying with the rational part gets overridden by those other systems. And so what they're trying to measure by doing this test is how quickly we respond with those other parts of our brain toward images that we see. And so in this particular study, what they're doing is that they're putting up pictures of African Americans and pictures of Caucasians with different sorts of adjectives and having people sort them before they can think about it. They're trying to measure what's going on in these other systems of the brain in order to see how we're rudely wired 
how we're wired in a deep sort of way. As many two million people have taken this as of 2014, a study that was voluntarily undertaken. And the, and the people who ran the study will quickly say, you gotta be careful about these statistics because it does not represent a cross-section demographic of the United States because there's people who simply chose to take it. There are ways you can interpret what that might mean, how it might skew it, anything, but this is, this is what they're, they're pointing to. Um, and what, what they found was that, um, that all of these represent some level of implicit bias in favor of whites. And the, the, so you, the blue and, and green represent, the, the gray represents the, the least of that case. But even they had a score that was, as, as they marked out the markers, between slightly prefer to moderately prefer whites to blacks in this test. And then it goes, the more you go toward orange and red, the higher, the, higher the, uh, the implications of this. Now, again, I'm not trying to present any sort of expertise about this stuff. What I'm trying to suggest is that this is a huge conversation in our culture. And one of the things that, to me that it says is really important is, as I mentioned probably a month ago, when we react to things in the news, or when we react to things that are going on around us, or when we react to things that people are saying, and we say, I'm not a racist, that's beside the point. That's right. That's beside the point. I mean, it does matter if you say, I'm a racist and I'm proud of it. That's an issue. Um, but the more significant question is, what's going on inside me, of which I'm not even aware, what's going on among us, of which we are unaware? And once we begin to be aware of these things, what can we do to deal with them? How can we school ourselves and train ourselves in order that these sorts of impulsive orientations, biases, judgments, uh, don't skew as much our relationships with others. So here's our next thing, pair share. Um, can, does your own experience um, does your own experience in any way confirm or deny the notion of implicit bias? Okay. Does your own experience confirm, affirm, or deny the presence of such things as implicit bias? Does that make sense? Go to it.
what I just said. I don't have any more details. share something that your uh, conversation partner shared. Somebody, somebody share with us what your uh, conversation partner had to say. All right, here we go, Steve. So, Brad was sharing, I actually have a very similar experience. I don't think this is a southern thing. Yeah. We both grew up in northern cities, and it's much more segregated than north. And he was telling his story of how he grew up. I have a similar story when I grew up, and it was, it was you went, you went through neighborhood, I mean, it was very segregated. You were, when I was growing up, you were told, okay, we gotta go through this neighborhood, lock the doors, look straight ahead, don't lock it. You know, and then when you move into a southern city where the black and whites live together now, you still have lots of problems and biases. Because when we lived up north, only people of color we saw was two-dimensional on TV. We didn't interact with anybody. I must say, a quick, if I can tell a quick story, uh, when I was a senior in high school, Talladega, Alabama, uh, our high school was 50% white, 50% black. Um, no Hispanics that I remember, uh, just black and white. Uh, our senior honor society group got to spend a week in Detroit, and then they came down to Alabama, spend a week in Alabama. So we went up to Detroit to Wyandotte, Michigan, which is right, working class community in the heart of Detroit. Huge high school, uh, three or 4,000 students. Um, we go to school the first day in Detroit, and there were two people of color. One was African American and one was Native American. And I was just like, wait a second, what's going on here? Um, and, and so yeah, I think it's important for us to realize, and of course we, can, we Southerners can quickly use this as some way to be defensive, which of <laughs> course I did feel defensive. Um, but it doesn't help for us, to, again, we can always look for polarities, right? Um, and the polarities are always much more complex than we typically assume. has a cumulative effect. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, I, I'm an educator, so I look at, for example, like implicit bias and how that affects like suspension rates um, mm. in African-American students um, are much higher, right? And a lot of that is not a result of explicit racism, it's implicit bias that kind of causes that. Um, and then kind of related to that, my partner kind of pointed out, as we kind of see on the map, where are the like reddest states, right? And the fact that it kind of matches up with the Confederacy, I think, is an interesting point, right? Like that there's kind of, and of course it goes up into Ohio, which I'm kind of sad about as an Ohioan, right? But, um, <laughs> but 
the idea that this is sort of like it was a rise in type of history, like it's going to be passed along the way. I don't think we've ever gotten a
of um, what was that word you used about the, the, uh, the black um, uh, uh, underrooting of the history to be able to stand up as a white guy and tell a lady who's um, dancing, you know, making a lot of noise in her church, is this about the Spirit of God doing this to you, or are you just showing off? <laughs> Where a black minister, if he goes to a, a, a uh, um, gospel church, he's got the right of passage to, to be honest to say anything, and he'll get up and say to her, now, 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 is, is that about spirituality, or is it about um, you showing off and you dancing around and, and making you know, all this noise. And I told the congregation, I'm just not comfortable um, calling people out like that and don't think that I have entered right of passion to that deep of a level to be that direct with, um, you know, the congregation. So I always maintain to be an associate pastor and um, you know, let the African Americans, you know, take the uh, you know, limelight spot as the first lady and stuff like that. But uh, but just just a map would, would would significantly change if you took a smorgasbord sample of the military. I, I think that I think the colors would be different all over the map. Yeah, yeah. It's important to keep realizing again that the ministry of the church is about finding th these sorts of biases can be at lots of different places and lots of different issues. Last word. Are you? Oh, I thought you were going to yeah, I am. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Mary. Okay. Um, I don't want to get on my soapbox, uh, and I can't talk as quick, but I'll do the best I can. But now look. I've been like a fish out of water where all of this subject is concerned. I'm 92 years old. I've been through all of it. And I'll tell you a couple of little quick things to tell you. <coughs> I was born in a house and lived there till I married. We had a black man who was the neighborhood uh, helper for all the families. And I was just a child, very young, when I began to notice that <coughs> Chet was his name. And he went in everybody's house through the back door, except for our house. He went in the front door. I never questioned that. I just thought it was a little different. You know, I just didn't think about it that much. But then when I was, I was five and a half, I remember it well. I have a great memory. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Max. But anyway, I was at Shelby Park. My mother was there, and they'd take her neighborhood children to play on the playground. And I was on the merry-go-round. And this darling, they were called colored back then. That was a polite term. Colored child was sitting by me. And it was a hot summer day. And we both were thirsty. So I said, well, come on. We'll go down here to the fountain and get a drink of water. What did I know? We walked up to the fountain, and that child said to me, I can't drink out of that fountain. 
I said, what do you mean you can't drink out of this fountain? She said, I have to find the one that said color. I said, look, you come with me and we'll both drink out of this fountain and if anybody says anything to you, I'll tell my mother. <laughs> and I'm not going into all of the things I would be here for tonight that happened where I was the minority. Um, I think one of the craziest things that ever happened when I was going to pledge a sorority, I found out why I was blackballed. My friend told me that one of my friends who was pledging a sorority said, you know, she's a capital N lover. Okay? So, I can't tell you how many more. But why is it that so many people, it's love. It's not the color of your skin. I just have a new woman that came to my house that's Hispanic that I'm going to keep her. She doesn't have a car. I'm going to have to take her home. <laughs> but anyway, she is a beautiful woman. And she said to me, you treat me so differently. I said, what do you mean? She said, nobody hugs me that I work for. Nobody talks to me and wants to see the pictures of my children. I don't know what's wrong. Where's the love? To me, it goes back to the heart. My soul, where are people's hearts? I'm not real smart, I'm not real educated. But I'm telling you, this thing of bias toward people for any reason is so foreign to me. Now I've had arguments with my friends, close friends. But we came back together and they understood where I was coming from, but I never understood where they were coming from. <laughs> That's a wonderful place. Thank you very much. Amen. Thank you all. Y'all have a good week. Thank you. The other thing you'll find interesting in that literature, um, well, first of all, they're not just limited to race. I mean, it's, it's a lot more stuff on gender, age, ethnicity. The other thing is that I find interesting in this conversation, especially the way we keep having this dichotomy of black-white. The implicit bias research says the bias also exists in the African-American community, too, that it's very strong. And the book I would recommend somebody reading would be The Color Complex. It's about discrimination and bias in the black community about lighter and darker black skin. I was going to mention the interesting the, the
same yeah. study. Well, this is aggregate. My guess is the reason that's so bright red are not white Southern racist. My guess is that's African American perceptions. I think this particular map was just white. Was it? Okay. All right. But, but yeah, but, but if you look at the data, that, yeah. and, and, and I use it with my students because they all start out every semester in intercultural communication with, well, I'm not biased. I'm not biased. After church, let's meet and then up. We so do this online and get their scores back. Let's say, well, but the darker man looked like a thug. Yes, I mean, then you, you, you go into that. You know. Thank you. It definitely has. I don't think so. A long time ago, four years time, he, he wrote, he was essentially a humorist, I guess, but he wrote several books for two cents a plane. You know, he grew up in New York. You could get, uh, that came from, you could get a, club soda at the drugstore. <laughs> but he had a, he had some integration plans. One of his integration plans was the Golden uh, Water Fountain Plan. He says we have a problem with the, the colored water fountain and the white colored fountain. He says, solution's easy, take out the white one. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, uh, another thing he said was that the, uh, well, I don't know the name of it, but uh, he said nobody, nobody pays attention to a vertical negro. That's what it was. Golden vertical negro. He says nobody worries about it. You go to the bank, everybody stands in line, nobody cares. No, he, he goes through all this stuff. He says, now the way to integrate the schools is take out the seats. <laughs> he says, let them all stand up. It'll work it fine. Is. And he said, they might learn something. They're not learning anything now. Who said all that? Harry Golden. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> take out the seats. Take your seats. That's funny. I kept wondering what in the world that was. I hadn't gotten close enough to tell. I guess they wanted to separate and be able 